some people say they wish they could live in a book. Now I get it, but me personally, there is nothing like film and TV. New worlds, galaxies, unspoken laws and universes to explore. And I love these worlds. I want to go for a walk through Mordor with Frodo. I want to see time and space with Spock. I want to drive a car into a battlefield with Optimus Prime. I am obsessed. I rewatch and track the hidden messages, Easter eggs, and theories that come from these amazing franchises. So sit back, grab your popcorn, and let me take you through the finer details of these incredible stories. I'm T, and welcome to Theories by T. Twelve districts, two children, one battlefield. Contestants battle to the death for survival and entertainment of the rich. But what happens when one young woman decides to topple it all down? Enjoy the podcast, folks. And remember, may the odds be ever in your favor. Hello and welcome to the Theories by T podcast. I'm your host, Terrell, and in partnership with Sky Cinema, today we are doing a retrospective on Jennifer Lawrence's breakout franchise, The Hunger Games. With the prequel film Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes set to release this winter, I thought it was a good time to take a look back at what made these movies so iconic. Before we get started, I'd like to remind listeners that all four Hunger Games films are available right now on Sky Cinema. So if you feel so inclined, go give them a watch or rewatch, as it was in my case. As with previous episodes, we're going to be looking into the cast, the best scenes, behind the scenes facts, and all of the details that made this movie such a hit. Now, let's get cracking. The Hunger Games dropped in 2012, based on Suzanne Collins' book series of the same name. The story goes like this. The fictional country of Panem is divided into 12 districts, all ruled and governed by a wealthy elite living in the country's capital. Long ago, classes beneath the elite sought their control as corrupt and cruel and tried to rise up and revolt against them, but they were overpowered. As a show of dominance, the capital enforced an annual televised competition that chose two children from each district at random, forcing them to fight to the death. In the present day, when expert archer and hunter from District 12 Katniss Everdeen finds her younger sister Primrose had been called up to fight, she volunteers as tribute in her place. Now, teaming up with local baker Peter, she must impress the elite and defeat her opponents in The Hunger Games. 2012 was an interesting time for this movie to come out because it was right on the back of Harry Potter and Twilight coming to an end, and the idea of young adult novels becoming major movie franchises was all the buzz in Hollywood. I remember in school, all the girls going nuts over these kinds of films. Divergent, Fault in Our Stars, I Am Number Four. Basically, the logic in this era was that if the kids loved it as a book, the kids will love it as a movie. Now, over time, this would have varying success, but Hunger Games certainly sits on the more successful end of that. I will admit, even though I certainly watched these movies at the time, I never retained a great memory of them. But that was mostly because I was a simple teenage boy, and if the girls in school were into something, I would actively try not to be. That's also why I didn't appreciate the talent that is Justin Bieber until much later. He had his. Let's talk about the cast of the original Hunger Games. Jennifer Lawrence is one of those actors who came on the scene and basically took over not just Hollywood, but celebrity culture in general. As far as the first one goes, it's not hard at all to see why. J-Law killed it in this movie. She was in a YA, that's young adult, movie, but never played it kiddie, as can sometimes be the case with this genre. Katniss is a character that was forced to grow up young, to take care of her sister and mother and hunt to survive. And I think Jennifer communicated that super well. 
Other actresses who went for the role of Katniss include Hayley Steinfeld from Pitch Perfect 2 and Hawkeye and Emma Roberts. Chloe Grace Moretz went for it too, as did Shailene Woodley. Jennifer had to go through Olympic level training for the filming process, including training in archery with Olympian Katuna Lorig. Apparently, Lawrence's on-screen archery was so good that she accidentally shot a stuntman with an arrow. He's okay though, he was wearing protective armor. Josh Hutchison plays partner and love interest Peter Malark in the film, the baker and artist turned muscle of District 12. I think he played the role well. I don't think he had that much chemistry with Jennifer in this first film, but they didn't bother me since I mainly liked how the character was such a subversion of this franchise's typical love interest. Peter was softer than your typical male love interest, and he knew it. He went into the games with very little confidence in himself, but built up his confidence when he realized how much he cared for Katniss, and when he realized that it takes more than combat skills to survive. Hutchison said that he was already a fan of the books before getting into the role, and immediately knew he wanted Peter because of the character's complexity and the story's powerful themes. Alexander Ludwig auditioned for Peter, as did Liam Hemsworth, but both of course got the other two male roles of the film. Yes, Liam Hemsworth as Gale was present for some of the film, but I'll be honest, the character of Gale is meant to be a bigger love interest than this. Love triangles were a huge thing back in the day, but I guess nobody told the filmmakers, so they stuck Thor's brother in a couple scenes and moved on. And speaking of moving on, let's talk about the rest of the cast because it is super star-studded. Woody Harrelson was super fun to watch as Haymitch, former Hunger Games champion and now mentor with Katniss and Peter. I loved his drunken, laid-back demeanor and how he entirely switches his behavior when he sees the kid's potential. John C. Riley was also considered for the role of Haymitch. I love the guy, I think he's hilarious, but I don't think he would have been able to balance that with the grit Haymitch has the same way Woody does. You also had Elizabeth Banks as Effie, Stanley Tucci as the Jimmy Fallon-esque stand-in, and a young Amanda Stenberg getting her career started as Rue. Toby Jones was also there, and most surprisingly, Lenny Kravitz. What the heck is Lenny Kravitz doing here? Apparently, director Gary Ross had seen Kravitz in the film Precious and thought the character of Nurse John shared similar qualities to Sinner, Candace's creative stylist in The Hunger Games. Suzanne Collins was the writer of the ever-popular books that inspired this film, which sold over 26 million copies in the United States alone, with translations in more than 50 languages. She also co-wrote the scripts along with the director and Billy Ray Cyrus. Yes, you have Hannah Montana's dad to thank for the scripts for The Hunger Games. I wonder if he pitched his daughter to play Katniss. The movie was directed by Gary Ross, who opted for the film to implement a lot of handheld shots and shaky cam for its action sequences. We see it used quite regularly during the games itself, placing the audiences bang in the middle of the action and making us feel the urgency that the characters feel. The technique of shaky cam for action scenes became widely popularized thanks to the Jason Bourne franchise, also using it to heighten the energy and action of a sequence. I'd say the technique has been done to death nowadays and can sometimes be used to disguise a bad set, stunt choreographers, or just an otherwise boring scene, but thankfully Hunger Games was still in an era where it was just popular enough to be innovative and fun. James Newton Howard composed the score, who prior to this worked on The Dark Knight. The score is something that stands out in the franchise, not just for any one note in particular, but for the emotion the soundtrack portrays in various scenes. The melancholic despair feeling we get when in District 12, the uproarious celebration music during Katniss and Peter's first appearance in the fire outfits, and the range of fast and slow tones during the games to reflect the circumstance changing so regularly. All of it was so expertly done. James also composed the big hit song from the film, Hanging Tree, which even hit the charts.
Okay, so now let's talk about my top three favorite scenes from this film. So my number three scene for the Hunger Games is the reaping scene where Effie Trinket, played by Elizabeth Banks, comes to District 12 announcing the two tributes. There is just so much to unpack in this scene. First of all, we spent a lot of time in District 12 with the film committing to this desaturated grey and white colour grading, no colouring clothes, even the actors made to look quite pale. Then in comes Effie, and I think this really sets up the tone for the film and the state of the world that we're in right now. Effie is brightly coloured, with a hauntingly wide smile and all the energy in the world and as loud as can be. This massive contrast to the absolute purgatory the District 12 people have been living in is the status quo of the film. The rich, powerful elite boastfully enjoying their wealth and riches, whilst the rest of the world is so depressed and struggling they literally feel bereft of colour. It's a simple but great way to show the difference in class. The tension of the scene is also really felt, with every member of the crowd terrified that they'll be chosen. I love even the twist on the audience. Spending all this time with Katniss and Gale, showing her hunting skills, you assume she'd be chosen for the games. But then it's her sister. JLo's facial expression when she realizes it's Prim is incredible, fully distraught. And here's where we get more of that shaky cam, pushing through the crowd as Katniss rushes to save her sister. And of course, the unforgettable line made so iconic, I'm pretty sure people say it today and forget it's from this film. I volunteer as tribute. This was a nice foreshadow actually, Katniss establishing herself as a figure who breaks convention. That tendency to go against the capital's rule and status quo is how she makes it so far in the games. The flaming dress, her shooting the apple at the audition, and of course completely challenging the rule of there only being one winner of the Hunger Games. Her natural choice to always defy the upper class rule is pretty much the theme that runs throughout the franchise and it all started right here. My second favourite scene of the film I'm going to give to the beginning of the games. This is probably where the infamous shaky gam is utilised the most and to the greatest effect. When I say this film expertly puts the audience in the shoes of the characters, I really mean that in every sense. From sound design to camera work, the tone and energy is communicated effortlessly. To set the scene, the contestants are all deployed onto the battlefield at the same time, creating a mad dash for a survival kit and weapons and quickly collapsing into an all-out bloody skirmish. Every contestant is running frantically, the camera, now handheld, is scurrying just as fast through like a bystander in a stampede. The edits cutting between shots so fast and blurry we barely make out what's happening, but shots are held just long enough to see the more brutal members slice, stab and bludgeon their opponents. The sound is so interesting and indicative of why this scene was so unique. What we hear is basically white noise, no music, no diegetic sound, just purely a screech. Now we can barely take things in visually and audibly. This is because the scene is from the perspective of Katniss. We see the camera is basically trying to follow her eyeline. Where she looks, we look. That's why sound only starts to come back when she makes her dash for the gear. She starts to focus more, just narrowly surviving the skirmish. This scene really set the tone for the rest of the games as it showed how chaotic it actually was. It doesn't matter if your favourite character showed some skill in the auditions. Just because Peter can throw a ball good or Rue can climb things, either of them could have been crossed off in the blink of an eye. And my favourite scene of the film, perhaps a little morbidly, was the death of poor little Rue. I, I need a moment. So for context, Rue is the young girl from District 11, played by Amanda Stenberg. Despite her age and size, she was very skilled when it came to stealth. She was good at pickpocketing, climbing trees and scavenging. 
During the audition process, Katniss takes a liking to Rue, and it's never said, but presumably this is because Rue is around about the same age as her little sister, Primrose. The whole reason Katniss is in the games in the first place is to protect an innocent child from getting slaughtered, and now she sees another child here anyway. The pair help each other out during the games, and when Rue gets caught in a net trap, Katniss naturally runs to help this surrogate sister. But it was sadly a trap, and one member launches a spear at them. Katniss dodges and one-shots him with an arrow, but poor Rue wasn't so lucky, impaled by the spear. There is something so heartbreaking and so devastating about watching a child yank a spear out of her own chest. Again, just knowing Rue is looked at as a stand-in for Primrose to Katniss just makes everything so sad and Jennifer Lawrence's facial expression feels so justified. Katniss goes on to sing the same song that she would sing to Prim, crying over her with Rue's last words being that she has to win, words that would echo throughout the franchise. As Rue fades, Katniss freaks out, screaming and throwing the spear in anger, but again, we don't hear it. We see this anger, but it's transitioned from diegetic to non-diegetic, that's from sound in the scene to this sad yet peaceful church-like melody to complement the tragedy of the moment and gentle nature of poor Rue. Katniss buries her among flowers, a great way of showing Rue that respect, as despite the chaos, Katniss recognises that Rue's death symbolises what the districts are so against, the victimisation of innocent children. The white flower specifically, again a reflection of Rue's purity. That's where we see the iconic moment of Katniss doing her three finger salute to the people of District 11, who all do it back before breaking out into riot. This is probably the most instrumental moment in the franchise, as it was really what galvanises the people to begin the revolution and rebel against the capital, which we'll talk about later. Okay, now if we're all done crying, I think we should get cracking into the Easter eggs and behind the scenes facts that you might not have known about The Hunger Games. The Hunger Games was often compared to a similar story called Battle Royale, a Japanese film similarly about a group of children forced to battle to the death. Many compare the two to say Hunger Games ripped it off, but I feel like children fighting each other in combat is pretty much where the similarities end. The oppressed revolting against the elite element of the film that I think is the real heart of the franchise, I think separates it entirely. Which film was better than the other really comes down to preference. Its actual inspiration from the books was based on Suzanne Collins watching footage of war on television while surfing for something to watch, in addition to several channels showing reality TV. That grotesque fusion of both things just being televised normally gave her the inspiration, seeing they fused together in an unsettling way, which led to the idea of people watching The Hunger Games as a similarly reality TV style piece of entertainment. Her own father fought in the Vietnam War, so she was always raised with an understanding of these issues surrounding war, with the books tackling that subject very carefully. That famous three-finger salute was made by Jennifer Lawrence, if you can believe that. She brought this gesture into the film as a nice character straight, adding depth, and now it's impacted society today, with cultures using that same gesture as a sign of solidarity in oppressed communities around the world. Stanley Tucci's Caesar Flickerman looks very, shall we say, fake throughout the films. That's because they wanted to emulate the look of him having prosthetic changes. The makeup designer used scotch tape to yank his face up and make him seem more done up and slapped in some fake teeth for added effect. Hunger Games may have been a huge hit, but its PG-13 or 12 in the UK rating was met with a lot of controversy due to the amount of violence shown. The film includes a lot of scenes of characters with bloody blades and impalments, which ticked off a lot of parents. And this even made the news at the time. 
However, if you look back at the film, it doesn't actually violate BBFC or any age certification guidelines. Yes, there is blood in scenes, but we never directly see weapons piercing the body, just moments afterwards or filmed from an angle where you can't actually see the point of entry. Like when Rue is impaled, we don't actually see the spear connect just a moment after as she pulls it out and even then only for a second. Yes, the implication is that the deaths were brutal, but I think the cinematography, editing, makeup and acting really lent to making the film feel more brutal than it was. Hunger Games used a lot more CGI than you might remember. It was filmed on an alleged modest 75 to 80 million dollar budget, which for a huge blockbuster like this isn't all too big. They managed to save a lot of money on cost and practical design by utilizing CGI for background details, large crowds and action set pieces. Hell, even Candace's arrows were CGI. JLo went through all her archery training just to pretend to shoot an arrow. That famous I volunteer as tribute scene was memorable for how tired and wiped out all the potential tributes looked. Well, Mother Nature helped out a lot with that, as they were filming underneath a blazing hot sun with actors struggling to perform. So that look of exhaustion and potential dehydration, not all of that is acting, it's just reaction to filming in the 37 degrees celsius sun. The main cast did stick around to hang out with the extras, thanking them for their resilience and sign autographs, so at least they were recognised for their hard work. I mentioned some potential castings before, like Hayley Steinfeld auditioning for Katniss, but there was so much more juicy almost. Evan Peters was a contender for Peter Malark, which I can totally see, and Aaron Taylor Johnson was also up for Peter. Yes, both Quicksilvers went for that role. And David Henry was up for Gale. Who is David Henry, I hear you ask? He is the son in the flash forward of How I Met Your Mother, and more famously, if you're my age, Justin Russo from Wizards of Waverly Place. I love the dude in Wizards, I kind of really wish he got the role, maybe we'd see him in more stuff if he did. The makeup department were on job for this film, as 35 full-time makeup artists were hired to take care of the actors on set, whilst 1800 mostly handmade costumes were created just for the extras. The country of Panem is in fact a future version of North America, made smaller due to rising sea levels in the future and of course everyone being placed into districts and controlled by the powerful elite, all of this being reflective of the natural result of modern society's progression. Yeah, these books were incredibly ahead of their time. This climate change business has only gotten worse over the years. This one's quite funny and juicy. There were rumours of Liam Hemsworth and Jennifer Lawrence having a secret fling. Now, Miley Cyrus and Liam Hemsworth were dating for years, even eventually married before their split in 2019. But fans had been sniffing around some cheating clues. When Miley Cyrus recently dropped the track for Flowers, many presumed it was about her breakup with Liam. And in the video, she even wears a gold dress. Now fans were doing more analysing than even me as they thought that that gold dress was a reference to Jennifer Lawrence also wearing a gold dress at the Hunger Games premiere. Since they thought he was cheating back then, they assumed this was confirmation of that. But J-Law has confirmed that was not the case and they had innocently kissed in the past but this was long after he'd broken up with Miley. Eesh, drama. Now let's talk about that money. Remember that 75 to 80 million dollar budget I talked about? Yeah, Hunger Games blew it out of the water, earning a worldwide total of 694 million. It sets records for the highest grossing midnight ticket sales for a non-sequel film at the time and Lionsgate's highest grossing film worldwide. 
It held the record for the highest grossing film in March and Spring in general for years until Warner Brothers eventually managed to hit them back with Batman vs Superman. Critics were pretty modest with their reviews, most saying it was a great adaptation of the novel and hitting 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. Most acknowledge that while it's not the leader in its film in regards to action, it's the acting and emotional beats that have the critics raving. Fans unsurprisingly adored this film too. The book fans of course ate it up, and those that hadn't read the book still called it a fun adventure that they'd later become addicted to. As far as awards season, the song Safe and Sound won a Golden Globe for Best Original Song and a Grammy for Best Song Written for Visual Media. For young adult movies, the awards that really count for the fans are the ones that are catered to them such as the MTV Movie Awards, in which J-Law and Josh won Best Female and Male Performance and their final battle winning Best Fight. And over on the Teen Choice Awards, it was nearly a clean sweep. Liam Hemsworth got Choice Male Hottie and Scene Stealer, J-Law and Josh both got Choice Sci-Fi Actors and Choice Lip Lock, Amanda and Jennifer got Best Chemistry, Alexander Ludwig got Best Villain, and the movie overall won Choice Sci-Fi Fantasy Movie. On rewatch, some elements of the film didn't age the best. That excessive use of CGI may not have been too noticeable in 2012, but over a decade later, it shows. Forgiving that though, I think the film is kinda underrated, especially in technical elements. I think the cinematography and sound design were great, it had super unique costumes for the elites, and a well-deserved, impressive acting performance from Jennifer Lawrence. And I'm saying that with the context of seeing all of her other films that maybe get taken a bit more seriously. Yeah, she and the filmmakers did not treat this film as if it was for teens and just phone it in like many other franchises would have. Instead, they pulled out all the stops to make a compelling and emotional story with brutal action all the while building a whole world that the audience feel like they were a part of. For as huge as this franchise was, despite the sequels being superior in my opinion, I think people are quick to forget it really earns its stripes with the original. But of course, this was only where the story begins. That was the 74th Hunger Games, now we're on the 75th, otherwise known as the Quarter Quell. So let's talk about Hunger Games Catching Fire. To recap where the first film left off, Katniss and Peter both survived the Hunger Games by threatening to pull a Romeo and Juliet and killing themselves if they weren't both allowed to win, making them the first unprecedented dual winners of the Hunger Games. Now the pair are on a victory tour, visiting the districts but find that their defiance throughout the games has inspired the beginnings of a rebellion as the districts rise to take on the capital. But President Snow still shows that he's in power by amending the rules to the new Hunger Games, the Quarter Quell, with previous victors having to head back in, including our dynamic duo. I will say off the bat, I think Catching Fire was the strongest of the four films and I'll explain why. I have no major issues with Mockingjay or the original, but I think Catching Fire does the best job in utilising the aftermath from the predecessor whilst correcting some of its shortcomings and still pave its own way as its own unique story with a whole lot more tension. Jennifer Lawrence does a great job of carrying Katniss's survivor's guilt, but surprisingly, Josh Hutchison really steps up in this film. Peter really gets screwed in the first film, falling in love with a girl that only wanted to pretend to be together to keep the cameras happy. So now he has to swallow his anger at her and the situation whilst also caring for her and still wanting the best for his family and the rest of the world. He is the real hero in this film, which is sad considering the tragic end. Let's go back on casting, as this film adds the brilliant late Philip Seymour Hoffman to the cast. He plays Plutarch Heavensby, initially presented to the audience as the head gamesmaker and replacement of the last film Seneca Crane. He is such a great addition to the story because now we get to spend more time and get an understanding of the inner workings of the capital, especially because we don't know he's a double agent for the entire film. 
Now with this film being the quarter quell, we got a whole new set of other tributes. Sam Claflin, Jenna Malone, Jeffrey Wright, Alan Richardson, very underrated actor by the way, all great additions to the film, adding a fun new dynamic to the games. The characters team up to survive, and with Katniss and Pizza surviving, the rules are now clearly malleable, meaning there's no guessing how it could end. I love it, there's so much suspense woven throughout. I also didn't talk much about Elizabeth Banks as Effie in this one. I feel like she really has a lot more depth in this film. Here, Effie is a bit more invested in Peter and Katniss. She spent all this time with them and actually feels a sense of responsibility and sadness for them going into the games again. Okay, so top three scenes from this one. Let's run through them. So number three, I'm going to give to Katniss and the gang fighting the monkeys. The film had wall-to-wall -wall action and I loved it. First of all, those monkeys were absurdly scary. VFX had improved the leaps and bounds between these films because those things were a lot more realistic looking than those wolf creatures from the first film. Finnick was generally really cool in this film. I loved his spear work, as well as Katniss's archery. Poor Peter wasn't keeping up combat-wise, though he generally did pale in comparison to Katniss when it came to fighting. The changeling jumping out the wall saving Peter was a real jump scare, but reminded me why I like these movies. These were young adult movies, but never afraid to push the sensitivity bar. I feel like this would have been a rough scene for kids to watch. It was kind of scary for me as an adult, to be honest. Generally, adding the idea of natural enemies attacking every hour was a great way for the movie to build suspense, as opposed to just running from other contestants again. My number two scene in Catching Fire is Katniss's speech at District 11. She and Peter are on tour giving a speech of condolence to District 11 for Thresh and Rue's bravery in the last games. It was a really somber scene, seeing all the district members raise their three finger salute to them as they promised to donate money to the district to help them out. Followed by them being arrested and attacked by guards because any sign of support is a sign of insurgency. You can really tell the pressure is on for President Snow as Katniss has now sparked the first flame of an uprising and he's got an even more intense security squadron to keep people in check. It may feel like Snow had all the cards, but the truth is Katniss had him on the edge and shows a force like this is evident that he feels the heat. And now for me, the best scene of the film comes in the finale. I think this was great smoke and mirrors by the filmmakers here. Throughout the games, there is a subtle air of who can you trust? Hamish seemingly advised them to team up with Finnick, but Katniss never fully trusts him. Other contestants don't seem to like her very much, but they're all willing to team up with her regardless, and you're always wondering why. I love Jeffrey Wright as BT in this. He always felt 10 steps ahead of everyone, and his plan carefully laid out from the jump, using the coil to run it through the lightning tree and zap anybody on the beach, all of that was genius. But then things don't quite go to plan when Peter and the others get jumped, but Katniss pulls a Hail Mary, taking the coil, wrapping it around her arrow and firing it through the lightning, letting herself get hit so that it would feed back and electrify the dome. The VFX again here were great, and that was the cinematography. Her seeing the light burst through the fake night sky, symbolizing hope for her and her friends as she literally gets lifted away. And then the reveal. All of it was a carefully laid out plan by Hamish, Finnick and Plutarch Heavensby. This was a great reveal in the movie, showing that Katniss had already inspired the rebellion from the first movie, and everything that was subtly happening in the background was carefully orchestrated to make sure Katniss made it out alive. Once again, Jennifer Lawrence's acting was phenomenal here, having to authentically react to all of the information being presented, including Hamish teaming up with Plutarch, Finnick being in on it, and learning that District 12 was firebombed and that Peter was captured. 
a real Empire Strikes Back of an ending where the victory wasn't that at all. Katniss is left with painful loss and despair, and we the audience don't really know the Rebellion's plan yet. As far as movie cliffhangers go, this was a really good one. Okay, some more behind the scenes facts about this movie. At the start of Hunger Games 1, we're introduced to Katniss's cat called Buttercup, a small black and white kitty. Well, here's the thing, book fans are more rabid than you might think. There were several complaints of the inaccurate look of the cat, so much so that they recast Buttercup to a ginger cat in Catching Fire, and we see Prim holding her. I love the idea that in the cat community, this is their equivalent of Marvel switching out Terrence Howard for Don Cheadle, thinking we wouldn't notice. During press, Jennifer Lawrence addressed some backlash that she got after the first film. Back then, fans complained that she didn't have the right body type for Katniss, who should have been thin and malnourished, with people hoping that she'd lose weight for this new film. J-Law said this wasn't a good look and that they have control over this woman and role model, so why would they want her to look unattainable and thin? They instead wanted her to look healthy and fit, as she should. In addition to this, Katniss would go on to be a huge inspiration for young girls. Apparently, in the years the films were popular, archery interest had shot up worldwide, not to mention the iconic braid being a staple look for people. That being said, while Katniss's braid was a popular look for girls everywhere, it wasn't for Jennifer Lawrence, who admits that she's not a fan of doing the braid, evidently saying that it takes a lot of time. And fair play. I watched my girlfriend doing her braid and I swear it's a whole art form. It's like I was watching crochet. For the first two films, Jennifer Lawrence had the braid done in her hair as well as having it forcibly dyed, but evidently that left damage to her hair so she cut it off. So when we get to the Mockingjay films, the Katniss that we see here is actually wearing a wig. And not just her too, Liam Hemsworth had to dye his hair to play Gale and Josh Hutchison had to bleach his hair for Peter. Now that is commitment. Catching Fire was shot in IMAX for a better visual appeal, but it was a nightmare for the filmmakers. Since the film was famous for a handheld shaky cam, this was a struggle for camera operators as IMAX cameras are notoriously huge and hard to maneuver without the right equipment. They are also really loud, creating noise so powerful that none of the audio used in the scene was usable and they had to re-record lines in post to make up for it. It makes you wonder if IMAX was even worth it for this film. Although, I do admit, it was visually stunning. Jenna Malone played Joanna in the film, who has a hilarious scene with Katniss, Peter and Haymitch where she strips nude in front of them to express her detest for the clothes, and annoy Katniss by giving Peter some flirty eyes. Seriously, watch Jennifer's face in this scene, it's so funny. Well, despite this obviously being filmed without revealing too much, Jenna did actually get fully naked for the scene but it was shot in an actual hotel. So when Jenna got off on the wrong floor, a bystander was just standing there seeing her in her full birthday suit. Very awkward. During Gail and Candace's kiss scenes, Jenna Florence would annoy Liam Hemsworth by having smelly foods like garlic and tuna right before their scenes. That way for every kiss, Liam would have to deal with that stanky breath and still stay focused. Jen later said that this wasn't on purpose. She just happened to eat those things and didn't think about the kiss. And the final fact for this movie, filming Catching Fire left Jennifer Lawrence partially deaf. During the water scenes where contestants had to swim from deploy to shore and the cornucopia was spinning, it was spinning at 30 miles per hour. 
Jennifer Lawrence did so many takes under that condition that the water damaged her eardrums, leaving her partially deaf for a week. Ironically though, in the Hunger Games books, Katniss also does get some hearing damage from an explosion, leaving her hearing impaired. Life imitating art perhaps? Now let's get into the reviews and reception. Critics saw massive improvement in this film, sitting at 90% on Rotten Tomatoes to this day and 4.7 stars on Google. Everyone seemed to agree that it was quote, vivid and visceral filmmaking and cast a critical light on our current systems. It turned over a whopping $865 million worldwide, making it the highest grossing film of 2013, the highest grossing film of the entire franchise and currently still Lionsgate's biggest blockbuster ever. But with all that praise, it sadly didn't do all that well in award season, with several nominations yes, but only a small handful of wins in the MTV Movie Awards, Kids Choice Awards and Teen Choice Awards, but not nearly as much as last time. To be fair, 2013 had a lot of stiff competition, with Marvel Mania being at an all time high following the Avengers just a year prior and DC hot on their heels with Man of Steel. My overall thoughts are that The Hunger Games Catching Fire was incredible. Everything I liked about the film was pretty much improved upon by this one. They give gritty and visceral action, immersive cinematography and solid acting performances all round. I do think there was a little more focus on the love triangle of it all. I know that's in the books, but I feel like we spent a lot of time dealing with Katniss's split love for Gale and Peter to a point where I was kind of sick of it, but I know fans at the time were likely eating it up. These YA love triangles were all the rage back then thanks to Twilight and Vampire Diaries, so I won't say I'm shocked. The political divide between Katniss and the elites were really interesting to see, watching how out of place she and Peter felt being among the capital, it was great. And also thanks to the inclusion of Plutarch, we got to see how Katniss's interference was bothering President Snow. And it shines a light on how threatened the elites are when seeing the lower classes gain power and hope. I genuinely really like this film, not too much bad to say at all, I would go on but we've got two more films to cover so let's go. For the final two films I'm going to discuss them at the same time since they operate in a sort of part 1 and 2 formula. Of course the final film in a big saga has to have a part 1 and 2, thanks Harry Potter. These two films take a unique dive into the Hunger Games formula, namely that there is no Hunger Games. Instead, it tackles the more political side of the franchise's conflict, the average man versus the rich and powerful elite. That element of the original films was great and it's a nice contrast to the senseless action from the games and showing the pressure that Katniss and Peter were putting on President Snow was just awesome. It works well here for sure, but it also does mean that we get a lot more characters in the film that wind up making it feel crowded and additionally a little too long. Others may disagree, but I feel that with some necessary cuts, there's a chance that this could have just been one film. But still, it was a fun story and a nice switch up. Let's talk about the best scenes across both films. If we burn, you burn with us. This iconic scene begins with Katniss and Gale running from the enemy ships and Katniss expertly shoots the ship down out of the sky with an arrow. I was pretty happy to see Gale have more to do in this film. Hemsworth was a talent that was kind of getting wasted in the previous films outside of just being a love interest. Generally, I think those war videos that Suzanne said that she watched are depicted powerfully here. As badass as the action is, you don't feel good watching this scene. Everything is grey, the shaky cam still in effect and after the scene before showing how much faith the rebels had on Katniss, the emotional gravity of the scene is felt and it's heavy. And sadly, Katniss was too late to stop the ships from bombing the hospital and is outraged. But where in previous films Katniss may have broken down in tears and rage, she instead challenges Snow to his face. 
She yells down the camera and gives a heartfelt speech of hope to the remaining rebels and a warning to the capital that they have no plans of stopping their reign. The quotes most recognizable from the scene, of course, being Fire is catching and If we burn, you burn with us. Oof, was. My second favorite scene across both films, Peter versus Katniss. If you thought the cliffhanger at the end of Catching Fire was great, here we see Peter finally rescued, but see that he's been brainwashed and views Katniss as the enemy that he needs to kill. What a bittersweet ending. We've been trying all film to get him back, just to see that he's here physically, but not mentally. Just for context, Peter had been abducted by the capital at the end of Catching Fire, and throughout this film, Snow tried to use him as a propaganda tool against the rebellion. But when he refused to sell out his people and defy his captors, they took him down and tortured him, using the same venom that Katniss was stung with in the first Hunger Games, turning him into a mindless weapon. The slow reveal of his face was torture itself. They'd used effects to make the man look malnourished, scarred, and Hutchison's facial expression was haunting here. The man looked so sad and broken. Then the switch up to the attack, it had your heart racing. He choked her out so much that she had a neck brace. But my favorite scene comes from Mockingjay Part 2, the finale when Katniss confronts Coin in the execution of Snow. This really was the climax to the political battle that had been happening from the beginning. For context, earlier in the film, Katniss and Gale witness another bomb dropping on innocent civilians that they believe was Snow. But it turns out that Coin had orchestrated it to frame Snow and turn the peacekeepers against him. And this very bombing even killed Primrose, Katniss's sister. So when she enters the field, her anger to both parties and their play for power is palpable. She winds up shooting Coin instead of executing Snow, leaving Snow to be killed by the ensuing riot. This was a huge twist, because you feel glad that she got her revenge, but it doesn't bring back Prim or anybody that they lost. Much like in all wars and the Hunger Games themselves, there are no real winners here. Ugh, this franchise gets so much deeper than I remembered, wow. Alright, for the last time, let's talk about easter eggs and behind the scenes facts. Philip Seymour Hoffman tragically passed away due to a drug overdose before he could complete shooting the final films. So they managed to edit it so that Plutarch would appear a lot less, but not lessen his impact to the overall story. Since we see less of Plutarch in the film, some lines that Plutarch is known for saying in the books and the original script were amended to now come from Effie. It's when Effie talks about missing coffee and gives Katniss Sinner's notes for the rebellion outfit. Generally, I love that Effie's overall role in the story was boosted because Banks kills it and already has an emotional connection to Katniss that Plutarch just hadn't established much of yet. A similar amendment was given to Haymitch in the final scenes of part two. The letter that Haymitch handed to Katniss was from Plutarch and Haymitch sums it up by saying that she had been pardoned for the killing of Coin. This would have been Plutarch himself. Speaking of Effie and Haymitch, their kiss scene was totally improv. Apparently, Elizabeth Banks and Woody Harrelson planned that off camera themselves and just went for it, which the director loved and said, I love it, let's do it again. President Snow's first name is Coriolanus. This is the name of the legendary Roman leader who was a soldier that gets into politics, gets rejected and builds a campaign on vengeance and violence, much like the character in the film. Jennifer Lawrence was petrified of singing on set, despite her sounding great, to be honest. 
In the Hanging Tree song, the original lyric, wearing necklace of rope, is turned into a necklace of hope, as a way of focusing the propaganda for the rebellion against the capital. And the book fans will know that a necklace of rope was actually intended to be a reference to Katniss and Prim's childhood where they made rope necklaces. But this wasn't included in any of the films, so the lyric change made even more sense in the grand scheme of things. For the role of Alma Queen, Julianne Moore had to wear these faded contact lenses in order to make her eyes seem harder to focus on. This was to subtly give a level of distrusting coin for the audiences. You see, eyes in film are very important. Much like in real life, it's how we can trust the person. Usually the character with the most eye focus in shots is someone audiences trust because we see their expression. With Coyne's eyes glazed, it gives a subtle uncomfortability that would later learn to be an accurate feeling because trusting Coyne was a bad move. And the final, quite sweet fun fact, the children that Katniss and Peter have at the end was actually Jennifer Lawrence's real-life nephews, keeping that final family moment even more in the family. The critics wound up liking both films for what they were, but they seem to agree with me that they really didn't need to be split into two different films. It just felt like a lot of story and drama could be compressed into one for a bigger punch. Both films got 70% on Rotten Tomatoes, with part 1's consensus being that the film set up the finale with solid performances and political subtext despite coming up short on action. Meanwhile, part 2 is said to come to a poignant and overall satisfying conclusion. Part 1 did pretty well in the box office with 755 million worldwide against their 125 million budget, which is a pretty substantial profit. It didn't exactly beat out its predecessor, but still not exactly a failure. Part 2, however, fell short of expectations, hitting 653 million worldwide, which isn't bad, but not exactly great for a film franchise conclusion. This one had much stiffer competition in general, though, as this was also the year of Avengers Age of Ultron, Jurassic World, Furious 7, and Star Wars The Force Awakens, all of which were huge cash cows. As for accolades, neither did particularly well outside of a few nominations at the TCAs, KCAs, and MTV Movies. However, Liam Hemsworth did manage to get a promotion from winning Best Male Hottie to now just Best Male Action Star, so good for him. My overall thoughts on Mockingjay Part 1 and 2 are simply that when digested both simultaneously, they were great watches. Thanks to streaming on Sky Cinema, I didn't have to wait between films, so I got the full story experience. However, I can see the divide really left both films feeling like they were missing out on things. Action scenes and important character moments were divided between them, leaving both feeling like they were missing something and would have been stronger and packed with better scenes had they been merged into one. In general, I have to say I really enjoyed all four films to varying degrees. Watching the first one alone, it's no surprise how it became such a cultural phenomenon. Katniss was immediately a super likeable character with a lot of heart, grit and tenacity played excellently by Jennifer Lawrence. The film introduced a huge surge in dystopian film and TV with things like The Hundred or The Divergent series, as well as carried the torch of YA books to movies that Twilight and Harry Potter had left off beautifully. Unlike Twilight even, it really made sure that there was an appeal for wider audiences outside of just, you know, teenage girls. It was a consistently compelling story, continually giving us new characters to root for and building on suspense with each succeeding film. Book sales were huge, everyone who was anyone at the time made sure to watch these films, and it was the talk of the town with its target audience. For a franchise like this one to be such an influence on growing young girls is really significant in my opinion. 
J-Lo was a good role model for girls in regards to body positivity, being an action hero, and all the while still proudly upholding her femininity. The fact that so many got into archery because of Katniss and enjoyed female leads more because of Katniss and even based their personalities on her is so impressive. A female-led story performing so well critically and financially is a huge deal in the industry as it allows for so many more to follow in its footsteps. Not long afterwards, Marvel and DC would give their female heroes more focus too with Captain Marvel, Black Widow, Wonder Woman. And quite frankly, I think this was a direct response to the success of The Hunger Games. From Mockingjay pins to that side braid, I mean help, they even had a theme park in Dubai. I don't think you could look anywhere and not see Hunger Games lasting impact on film, fashion and pop culture. All of that is exactly why I had to include the Hunger Games in this retrospective podcast, because whether you like these films or not, they were undeniably iconic. That's all for this episode of Theories by T. If you want to watch any of the Hunger Games films, remember they are all available on Sky Cinema. And like I said before, try watching Mockingjay parts 1 and 2 back to back. Marathon the whole thing if you can. I do think it gives you a deeper appreciation on how seamless they made the overarching story. Once again, head to Sky Cinema to rewatch this and all your favorite movie franchises. And if you've been enjoying these podcasts, it would mean a lot to me if you could leave a nice review. I'll catch you guys next time. I've been T, and that's the T.